0: Welcome to Parma Christian Fellowship Church's weekly sermon podcast. All of our sermons are available for listening and download at pcf.church. May God's Word enrich you today. Good day to all of you. He is risen. Today is the day where every congregation all across the world Is celebrating and commemorating the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The day of his resurrection. Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus Christ who performed miracles. Jesus Christ who taught with boldness and authority. Jesus Christ who had power over demons. Jesus Christ who was betrayed Jesus Christ who was arrested Jesus Christ who was falsely tried and condemned Jesus Christ who was crucified on a cross Jesus Christ who died on that cross Jesus Christ who was buried in a tomb and sealed for 3 days It was this Jesus Christ who is both fully human and fully God, who was resurrected, who rose from the dead. And that's significant. That's important. This isn't a myth. This isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. It's history. Furthermore, it's actually true that he rose from the dead. There are certain beliefs out there that... Perhaps Jesus really didn't die, that it seemed like he died, but no, life truly exited his body. There was nothing but a corpse left. And if you've witnessed anyone die in your life, either a close family member or a friend, maybe you were actually at the moment where your friend or family member died. Then you know what I mean. When someone dies, life exits them. There's nothing left except A corpse. That's what happened to Jesus. And yet, he truly, historically and factually was resurrected from death. He came alive. And this is the day since 2,000 years ago, every year the church and its various congregations all across the world has celebrated and commemorated this time. For his resurrection validates all his claims to be the Son of God validates all his claims that he is the only agent of salvation, validates all his claims that he alone can provide peace with God, reconciliation with God, friendship with God, fellowship with God, relationship with God. It is his resurrection that validates those claims. And it is his resurrection that secures our hopes in those claims. Amen? This is why every Easter... I love giving my kids an empty Easter egg. And I know some of you are like, why are you, what an empty Easter egg? An empty Easter egg symbolizes the empty tomb. In fact, if you do a little bit of research, prior to when we started putting candy in eggs, it was always empty to signify that. And the empty tomb is more meaningful and more powerful and more significant, and more important than any piece of candy. I would rather my children learn about the resurrection than receive a piece of candy. Praise God, everyone. The cross is bare, and the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Now, I have a question to ask you. Have you ever had a hope? Have you ever had a dream? Have you ever had a hope or a dream in something or someone? Have you ever had that hope or dream not come into fruition? How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel? Odds are, if that dream or hope was minuscule or small in scope and dimension, then you moved on fairly quickly. It didn't take much to accept that and move on. However, if that hope and dream was large in scale, was high in magnitude, then it would be very difficult and challenging for one to just simply get over it and simply accept it and move on. The higher the hope and dream the more devastating it feels when it doesn't come into fruition. And that emotion is intensified even more if that hope and dream being incomplete is final. What I mean by that is some hopes and dreams are repeatable. Perhaps you lost that one championship game, but you're still healthy enough to play the next championship game. So you can always attempt to win the next one but some hopes and dreams when they don't come into fruition when it's not completed when they don't happen it's a one-time event it's either then or never and if you've ever experienced that type of loss then the emotion of loss where the hope and dream doesn't come in fruition is even more intense you feel crushed utterly defeated And all of us, we've experienced that from time to time. And we interpret those losses as failures. And perhaps it leads us to depression or denial or anger. It's very difficult to go through that. Sometimes it leads us to regret. I remember the first time... I had such a experience in my own life, a crushing defeat where my hopes and dreams were lost. It's when my first marriage fell apart. It was a time in which it fell into divorce, utterly crushed me. I felt lost. I felt defeated. I felt devastated. It took me two years to overcome it. Two years to find a place of healing. I had to go to counseling. It was not a fun time. Praise God, I I got to the point of healing. But that experience, it was overwhelmingly crushing to have such high hopes and high dreams not be realized. Now, perhaps you're sitting there and you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps me discussing this has welled up within you either immediate wounds or old wounds. Perhaps you can relate to the sensation of having a hope and a dream not come into fruition. And that doesn't necessarily sit well with you. Perhaps you're feeling a little uncomfortable because of that. Or perhaps you've gotten to a place of healing that the wounds aren't as effective towards you but you can still empathize to what that feels like. Now, if you're feeling uncomfortable or you can empathize to what I'm describing, I want you to sit in that place of uncomfortability. I want you to allow those emotions to well up in you, and I want you to feel uncomfortable. All too often, we approach Easter from a purely intellectual perspective. And that's good. That's wonderful. It's a good thing to approach Easter and try to understand it from an intellectual perspective. But all too often, we don't approach Easter from a more emotional and empathetic position of understanding and trying to grasp the story from that perspective. And my friends, to truly understand the joy of the cross, we must First wrestle with the grief that the devastating and crushing failure and loss in which the cross brought upon the hopes and dreams of the disciples that followed Jesus Christ. To truly grasp the joy of Easter, we must first comprehend the grief of the cross. the grief of the cross that nailed our Savior, Jesus Christ, and killed him. Now, Jesus Christ, at the time of his living, he claimed to be the Messiah. And that's a very loaded term. I could spend four or five sermons on what Messiah means and what all goes into it. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about Messiah. But before I even discuss a little bit, of Messiah, it's beneficial to understand the context in which he lived, especially the relationship between Israel and Rome. At the time, Israel was a vassal state under Roman power, under Roman rule. They didn't have complete autonomy, but Rome allowed and granted them some level of autonomy to function as their own state. Now, centuries prior to this, They had their own nation. Israel did. They had their own kingdom. They had their own kings. You can read all about this in the Old Testament. Huge chunks of the Old Testament is written, dedicated to that. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles tells the story of the nation of Israel. They had their own kingdom. They had their own nation. And over a course of events, and I leave you to read the Old Testament to know what those events are. Over a course of certain events, that nation of Israel was conquered. It was destroyed. Babylon came in and completely destroyed them. And after a few years, 70 years, they were allowed to return as a vassal state under that kingdom, under that kingdom. And they remained to have a little bit of autonomy, not all, but a little bit. And then after the Babylonians, the Greeks came in and conquered Babylon. And then after the Greeks, the Romans came in and conquered the Greeks. And every shift of power, every change of power, Israel remained a vassal state with some form of autonomy. They never really had freedom. So at this time in which Jesus is walking and talking and living, here's Israel under Roman power as a vassal state only they viewed Rome as oppressors they believed they were under Roman oppression and they longed for freedom they wanted freedom they wanted their nation and kingdom back they were raised with the old stories about Israel having a kingdom and nation that's what they wanted and that environment caused fertile ground to exist fertile ground in which hopes could spring And so many people began to teach about this Messiah figure. Now, this Messiah was this king, this warrior type figure. And he was going to come on the stage and he was going to overthrow the Roman government, overthrow the Roman Empire. He was going to conquer them and not just conquer them, but reestablish Jewish rule, reestablish the nation of Israel, reestablish it as a kingdom. And not only that, but he was going to establish it over all other nations. This new Israel that this Messiah figure was going to create was going to be the kingdom that ruled the entire world. All other nations would submit to Israel. And in this new nation, there would be no poverty. There would be no crime. There would be no thirst. There would be no hunger. It would be a perfect utopia heaven on earth so to speak that's the messiah that's what they believed in that's to whom they put their trust in and so now jesus comes on the scene and he claims to be the messiah he claims to be the son of god And he begins to perform miraculous deeds, healing people of various physical ailments. He even raises Lazarus from the dead. He has authority over demons. He has authority over the Greek deities that were worshipped by some people during the time. He had authority in teaching, boldness in teaching, much more than the religious elites of the time. He was a charismatic individual. And people began to follow him. Now, granted, some people thought he was radical. Some people thought he was a liar. Some people thought he was a lunatic. But there was quite a few people that followed him. Some people even willing to die for him. This created an, an environment, an atmosphere, where many people put their trust in Christ as this Messiah. They had full confidence Jesus Christ was this messianic king figure, this warrior figure. And this Jesus Christ, this guy, is going to conquer Rome and establish Israel as the kingdom. They put all their hopes and dreams in him. And yet, what happens? Jesus is betrayed and arrested, falsely accused and tried, condemned to death, and knelt on a cross. And he dies on that cross. Can you imagine the way they felt? Their hopes and dreams were at the highest that you can imagine. And in one day, those hopes and dreams are crushed fully and completely. Remember when I asked you earlier to sit in your uncomfortability, to allow those emotions to be expressed and felt? to once again fill or empathize with those emotions of loss where you have hopes and dreams not coming true. That's what the disciples felt. Their hopes and dreams at the highest level crushed. And I would dare say that the, given the nature of their hopes and dreams and what they wanted, it was a thousand times worse Their loss was a thousand times worse than what we've ever experienced. That is the grief of the cross. That's the grief of the cross. And yet soon, the grief of the cross will be overshadowed by the joy of the empty tomb. This is where We pick up in the Bible. After the resurrection, there are two disciples. They're walking on a road. One of them is Simon. The other one, we don't know who the disciple is. And they're walking. They don't know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They don't know that he's been resurrected yet. And they're walking. They're walking to a place called Emmaus. This is how Luke records it. In his gospel, starting in chapter 24, verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, Cleopas is Peter, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find this body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? The beginning with, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. While he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road. And how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, this passage has many lessons in which we can learn. But I only want to focus on three. First, to whom, with whom does Jesus reveal himself? To whom does Jesus reveal himself? It's quite interesting. Simon and his friend, the other disciple, they were walking toward Emmaus now, Peter, who's Simon Peter, and this other disciple, they're Jews. They're not only Jews, but they're not wealthy. And they're disgraced followers of a dead Messiah who they had put their hopes in. Given the context of society during that time, the totem pole of social standing, so to speak, they would have been on the low end of that bar. They would have been at the low end point of that totem pole and this is to whom jesus reveals himself and what's even more amazing if you read just a little bit prior to this passage the very first disciples the very first people jesus reveals himself to are his female disciples mary and the other females And that's even more significant because given that time, females had even less social status than their male counterparts. The overall point is that Jesus revealed himself to those at the lowest point on the social standing. That's amazing. Think about that. The resurrection of the Son of God was the grandest, most miraculous event in human history from the time that human history began to its very end. It is the apex of the human saga. Human history revolves around this one event, the greatest event to ever grace the world. And Jesus doesn't announce it, doesn't reveal it to those with power, To those with wealth, to those with high social standing, not at all. It is to those without power, to those without wealth, to those without social standing. As the Bible has declared countless times before, surely and indeed the first have become last, and the last have become first. Secondly, As they walk along, Jesus opens up the scriptures to them. Now, I mentioned prior that many people had their own interpretation, their own understanding of who Messiah is, what his identity was, and what his purpose was. They still adhere to that. They still attach themselves to it, so to speak. And yet, here comes Jesus. Now, they don't know who it's Jesus yet, but here comes Jesus opening up the word of God, the scriptures, which we, we will call the Old Testament, which we call the Old Testament nowadays. And truly reveals himself, truly reveals the Messiah, the Messiah's identity and the Messiah's purpose to them. And they understand. And not only do they understand within their hearts, it is set ablaze with hunger and passion to know more. Lastly, Jesus completely and fully reveals himself to the disciples at the place of the table, at the place of breaking bread. And that's important. In those days, to break bread is another way of saying to eat a meal. And In those days, and even in some cultures around the world nowadays, to eat a meal with someone carries with it deep connotations and association of family and friendship and bonding and intimacy. It is a place where you enjoy one another. You can relate to that. Perhaps you haven't thought of it in that way, but with whom do we generally and mostly eat meals? It's with those We find enjoyable to be around. Company, we like to be around. A place of bonding, a place of intimacy, a place of friendship, a place of family. And it is at this table, at that place, where Jesus opens their eyes fully and they fully recognize him. And they fully see Jesus. Jesus. Now that's important because all too often we think that God fully reveals God's self to us in a place of judgment or wrath. That that's when we truly understand God. But nothing can be furthest from the truth. Time again and time again throughout scripture, God is truly revealed to us as God's self, truly unveiled completely to us. Not at the place of wrath or judgment, but at the place of friendship, at the place of family, at the place of bonding, at the place of intimacy. And my friends, their story is our story. Like the disciples, like these two disciples... We are all on a walk. We are all on a journey. We're on a walk somewhere. Perhaps that destination is specific. Perhaps that destination is abstract in nature. Whatever that is, we are all in some kind of walk somewhere, the walk of life. And that destination, that's our own personal Emmaus. We're walking toward Emmaus. And as we walk toward Emmaus, Jesus does what he did with these disciples. He reveals himself to us. And in this passage, we find that he reveals himself to us in three ways. He reveals himself to us through experience. He reveals himself to us via scripture. And he reveals himself to us via intimacy. He reveals, to, he reveals himself to us via experience. As I said, we're all on a walk toward Emmaus, wherever that is. And Jesus comes in our life at one time and begins a relationship, at least attempts to begin a relationship, at least attempts to start a conversation with us. And at first, we may not recognize this Jesus, but over time, we do. And he walks beside us. And how amazing is it that Jesus reveals himself to everybody, regardless of social standing, regardless of power, Regardless of the level of wealth that they have. And that's true for those without power, without wealth, without social standing. So, are you a person that would be considered low on the social totem pole? Someone with no wealth, someone with no power, someone with no social standing? Then rejoice, for God hasn't cursed you, God hasn't cast you aside. Rather, God comes alongside of you, begins to walk with you toward your own personal Emmaus. He says, what's up? What's going on? What's happening? That's what Jesus did with the two disciples. Jesus shows up and says, what's been going on here? He shows up in your life and walks with you. And then what's interesting is he also, Jesus reveals himself via scripture. We all from time to time are in the place of the disciples where we carry with us our own interpretations and understanding of the Bible. And we're in the place of the disciples here where where we are dead set, 100% confident that we are right, that our interpretation is correct. But in reality, we are farthest from being correct we are completely wrong we completely miss it and like the disciples it takes Jesus to come in our life open up the scriptures and truly teach us about who he really is and what his purpose really is and it is him teaching us that stirs within our hearts that fire that passion that hunger to know more and not just know more but to know him more because that's the whole point to know him more And this is why we read scripture, not just so we can gain knowledge and understanding, but so we might grow closer to him, so we might know him, know who he really is and his purpose. Finally, Jesus reveals himself to us, like in the disciples at the place of bonding, at the place of intimacy, the place of fellowship, the place of friendship, the place of the table where bread is broken, God doesn't reveal him, God's self to us in the place of judgment or wrath, but rather friendship and intimacy. That's when we truly, truly see God. When we see God in the place of wrath, in the place of judgment, we're not truly seeing God. We're still seeing God with a veil. But this is a place of friendship and intimacy where that veil is opened and we begin to see God as who God really is. John Wesley said that I used to be a servant or a slave of God, but now I am a child of God. When we see God in the place of wrath and judgment, we're merely a slave and servant to God. But when we begin to really see God as who God is, when the veil is open at that place of intimacy, we see the relationship between a child, us, and our Heavenly Father. And this is so important at this time of Easter. Easter, the resurrection, happened some 2,000 years ago, way before any of us were ever born. We don't have the privilege that the disciples had to truly see Jesus face to face. I can't open a door and say, look at Jesus. Here is Jesus. Meet him physically. And yet, regardless, Jesus still does the same thing he did with them and has done with all his followers ever since he was raised from the dead. He comes to us alive, fully alive. He meets us where we're at. He begins a conversation. He walks with us. He talks with us. He breaks bread with us. And he offers a hand of invitation. A hand that invites us to begin friendship and relationship and fellowship with him. And all we have to do, all we have to do is walk with him, listen to him, and take that bread that he offers. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Today you have been risen. We celebrate and commemorate that day, the day in which you were resurrected, the greatest day to ever grace humanity, where hopes and dreams were completely crushed, where we are at a place of grieving and yet the overwhelming sensation of joy bubbling out of us because death didn't conquer you. The old hymn says, victory in Jesus. We are your children. You've been raised from the dead. And we thank you, God, that you come in our lives. Some 2,000 years ago, you know each one of us by name and you come to us As we walk toward our own Emmaus. And you start that conversation. You reveal yourself to us. You break bread with us. Seeking intimacy and fellowship with us. In this day God. We welcome that. We welcome fellowship with you. Wherever our position is on this journey toward Emmaus. If we're. Someone that doesn't know you, that's never known you, our hearts speak out. If we have known you, our hearts speak out. We want you, we seek you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.